Everyone loves a good comeback story, when the underdog is able to overcome harsh challenges and come out victorious. But the underdog in this comeback story isn't an athlete or even a person. It's New York Harbor. Good morning, I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. Later in the show, we'll talk to author John Waldman about his work tracing the history and comeback of New York Harbor. But first, WFUV's Chris Venezia with a story about how New York's waterways can be put to better use. For some New Yorkers, commuting into Manhattan can be a major pain. There always seems to be traffic on the highway, the subway never seems to come on time, and battling for a spot on the bus can feel like trying to get a good spot at a Dave Matthews Band concert. But for 37-year-old Stuart Becker, his commute is smooth sailing. No, really, he takes the East River Ferry Service every day from Williamsburg, Brooklyn to Manhattan. He's getting ready to board the ferry on a Thursday morning and says the ferry gives him a chance to kick back and relax before and after work. I usually read and if the weather's nice, I'll sit outside and just sit there. So it's uh, it's really pleasant. Everyone gets to see the snow. It's not like on the L train where it's incredibly crowded. Becker says the commute on the ferry takes him 30 minutes door to door where he works at the New York University Medical Center near Midtown. He says his other transit option is less pleasant. I'd have to take the, the L to the 6 or to a bus, and uh, it's, I don't know, it's just not as nice. High school student Ricky Jackson doesn't have it as easy. He lives in the Pelham Bay area of the East Bronx, and on the same Thursday morning, he waits for the BX-12 with friends as he commutes to the Upper East Side of Manhattan. You can take the 12 bus to the 3 bus and take the 101 bus. He says he takes those three buses every day and spends over an hour cramped on busy buses. Like many other high school students, he dreams of having his own set of wheels. If you have a car, you won't have to worry about none of that. That's why you got to stay in school and get a good education so you can buy things like that. Councilman James Vaca represents some neighborhoods in the East Bronx, including Pelham Bay. He has a different idea for getting to Manhattan from the East Bronx that doesn't involve buses or a car or even the subway. Studies have shown with ferry service that they would have a, 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 a much better commute to Manhattan and yet the city really is nowhere when it comes to meeting the needs of these neighborhoods. One study from the New York City Economic Development Corporation says ferry service from the East Bronx into Lower and Midtown Manhattan could reduce commuter times by almost 70 percent. A ferry trip into Midtown from a neighborhood in the East Bronx, like Throgs Neck, would take around 30 minutes. These are the communities crying out for better mass transit for years. And when you have a waterfront that's not utilized, you have a resource not utilized, and we have an opportunity now to do better. Advocates say ferry service to the Bronx is a step in the right direction, but the city shouldn't stop there. Stefan Knust is an architect and the director of sustainability for Eniat Architects. He co-authored an essay called Venice on the Hudson that proposed new ways for using the city's waterways. He says the possibilities for water transportation in New York extend beyond the Big Apple. There's this moment, this internodal moment, where you can link a number of different transportation networks together, uh, connect different parts of the city, and in our piece we talk about connecting to directly across the river to New Jersey, really to open up many more opportunities for people to travel, to exchange goods, to recreate uh, in, in many more different ways, but to also hop from one transportation network to the next. 
and and this network, frankly, could go all the way up to Montreal if you really think about it on the on the larger scale. Ferry service could also do more than take people to work or tourists down the river to Wall Street. In times of crisis, advocates say the waterways can be useful in getting people around or even out of the city. Roland Lewis is president and CEO of the Metropolitan Waterfront Alliance. He says the city shouldn't wait till after a disaster strikes to turn to ferries. Uh, during emergencies, it's, it's a critical resiliency uh, asset to have. We saw that most recently, of course, with Sandy. But before that, with uh, the transit strike and the, uh, the blackout we've had in the last 10 years, and well before that, during 9-11, we needed waterborne transit to get people around. Lewis hopes that someday, New York City will embrace what he calls the blue highways that exist all around the city. He says he dreams of a day when New Yorkers can take the ferry easily from one corner of the city to the other. Think of uh, enjoying a uh, hot dog in Coney Island for lunch and then uh, well, you can have your second hot dog for dinner up at Yankee Stadium and get there via ferry. And maybe when Ricky Jackson graduates high school, he won't have to buy a car. He'll be able to take the ferry. I'm Chris Venezia, WFUV News. This is Chris Williams, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. New York Harbor has a long history that starts way back in the 1600s. It's home to all kinds of species and wildlife, but throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the harbor was filled with trash and sewage, sending it on a downward trajectory. But now, it's making a comeback, and things are looking better. Today on the show, we're talking to John Waldman. He's the author of Heartbeats in the Muck the history, sea life, and environment of New York Harbor, which is now available from Fordham University Press. What was it about New York Harbor that interested you to study it? Because even in the introduction, you say a lot of marine biologists go out to Hawaii or other places to study wildlife, but you decided to stay here. And was that more because there wasn't a lot of research on it, or do you have like personal ties to the area? I do have personal ties to the area. I grew up in the East Bronx, and I had a, um, a very water-oriented childhood playing on the shores of Eastchester Bay and became totally in love with aquatic biology and, and fishing, actually, and uh, stayed in the area for my schooling and ended up being hired by the Hudson River Foundation for Science and Environmental Research just as I was finishing my Ph.D. And this was in the early 80s, and it was actually at a very interesting time in the uh, history of, of New York Harbor because it was about a decade after the Clean Water Act of 1972, which had enormous ramifications for the health of uh, harbors and estuaries and rivers all around the United States. And I think every system, every aquatic system has a story to tell, but I think no other system has had such what I would call a profoundly bent arc. The system was incredibly rich when the colonists first came here, despite the fact Native Americans were harvesting from it. And it was incredibly altered by uh, industry and human sewage to the point where vast sections of the harbor were dead. And I think the general public really has no idea about how bad it was at its worst. And to see it go from that state of, of literally vast sections of dead waters with no fish to what it is today, which is a, a thriving ecosystem, very different from what it was originally, but still thriving in its own way, was a story that needed to be told. So that's why I wrote the book. So you write that there are more rare species and communities in the metropolitan area than anywhere else in the state. And for me, that was pretty surprising to hear. You know, 
I think people tend to think urban areas just don't have much diversity, but you have to think about the geography of the area. This New York City region is a place that was where the glaciers reached down to from the north. So much of the area was glaciated, and then just south of here, south of Staten Island, it was unglaciated. So you had very different habitats meeting in this area, just in terms of the recent glacial history. And then you have the Hudson draining much of the waters of New York State and parts of five states emptying out into New York Harbor, connected to Long Island, which is basically just uh, glacial scraps that were scraped off the New England landscape and dumped here. So you have many different habitats in one place. And the more habitats you have, the more species that are unique to those habitats will, will sort of co-occur in the same region. So when you look at the diversity of, of fish and bird life and invertebrates and sum them across all these habitats, you have actually an incredibly rich and underappreciated total ecosystem. The book goes all the way back to when Henry Hudson first came here, and that was in the early 1600s. Were there fish in the water back then that are still there now? Or is there any way for us to know that? Because, you know, maybe they wouldn't have known how to classify fish. Yeah, the species composition of, of uh, fish and other creatures that Henry Hudson would have seen in 1609 are pretty much the same now. Um, you know, they, they vary in their abundance from year to year, but we have over 200 fish species in the Hudson watershed and then more marine species outside of it. So it has a, a many different fish species. The, the difference nowadays is that we've added some species because we have non-native introductions of, of uh, species from elsewhere. So in the Hudson, we have things like the zebra mussel, which is an Asian bivalve that is just kind of a monkey wrench in the ecology of the Hudson River. There were no zebra mussels found in the Hudson River in 1990. The first one showed up in 1991. And by 92, there were 550 billion of them estimated filtering the water column of the Hudson once per day and, and having major effects on the fish life. There are exotic species that are found in the system that weren't here in Hudson's time, even things like uh, the common carp. We've also had species disappear because of climate change. There's a species called the smelt that likes cold water. Since about 1998, we haven't had any smelt in the Hudson. They've been retreating northward, and now they're no longer found in Connecticut, and they're getting scarce in Massachusetts, and it seems to be a, a clear case of climate change. Uh, then we have species that are introduced on purpose into the system, like brown trout, uh, which are found in the watershed and uh, are revered as, a, as game species. So we have, we have species that come in by accident, like the zebra mussel, which probably rode in on, attached to some boat, to species that are put in on purpose. But the overall community is now different because of the accidental and purposeful introductions and also a few losses because of climate change. The system is getting warmer, and we're seeing more southern species. There's a really great anecdote in the book about Henry Hudson thinking that he saw salmon in the water and sort of people wondering for years afterwards if there were actually salmon there. I was just wondering if you could talk more about that. Yeah, Henry Hudson's mate, Robert Jewett, in his diary wrote that they saw many salmons. Uh, this was somewhere around uh, the area of Sandy Hook in the Lower Bay. And he was there in September, and he probably saw the common weakfish, which looks like a member of the salmon family, but is definitely not at all related. But you have to realize in those days that the, these mariners were not exactly ichthyologists, and they did not really know fish in any detail. And the level of science in those times, people thought that whales were fish. The Hudson never really had a salmon run of its own. It did have a few strays that would come from the Isotonic River, which is the nearest uh, large river that had any salmon and the southernmost in the entire continent. They did stock salmon in the Hudson in the late 1800s for a few years, and they returned in large numbers. 
but there was no re- there was no place for them to spawn, and it, it wasn't uh, continued. Commercial fishing in New York Harbor isn't really an option, right? Because of all the contamination. Yeah, the Hudson River actually was very heavily commercially fished through the 1800s and much of the 1900s. They were fishing shacks and camps up and down the river and even across from Manhattan. And it was well known the waters were polluted, but there was less concern those days until the environmental movement showed that, in fact, we should be worried about things like DDT and and other chemicals in the environment. And with the discovery in the early 70s that fish in the Hudson had a chemical that's known as PCBs, uh, polychlorinated biphenyls that were released from the General Electric plant upriver, it was decided that they had to shut down fisheries for most species. So they allowed striped bass and shad and sturgeon to be fished for a while because all of these are migratory fish that go to sea and spend most of their life in cleaner water. But eventually, because of contamination and particularly because some of these species were having a hard time just in terms of the abundance levels, all commercial fishing was shut down except for blue crabs. So the only fish that can be harvested now from the river is the blue crab, and that's that's harvested in low numbers. And even there, there are advisories against eating the internal organs, which some people actually appreciate. It's called tamale, and it's actually quite delicious, but you don't want to eat tamale from the Hudson. Do you think it's possible that the it would ever be clean enough for commercial fishing to be an option again, or is that is that not even possible? I think it's important to have goals like that. You know, it, it's not going to happen tomorrow. One of the big restorations going on now is with oysters. Uh, there's tremendous interest in recovering oysters in the system. You know, originally there were estimated to be 350, 350 square miles of, of oyster reef around the region, and uh, they became so scarce that in the 1970s, when a diver found a few near the Statue of Liberty, it was a front-page news on one of the daily tabloids. So the decline of oysters was just uh, incredible in the system. When the first colonists came here, they, they ate them for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it was seemed to be an inexhaustible resource. And, and now we are putting oyster reefs in at uh, artificial reefs at a number of locations around the harbor. And there's, you know, the temptation, of course, to want to eat oysters because they're so fantastically delicious. But the sense is that a lot of this recovery is being done purely for ecological reasons and that oysters' uh, consumption is a long way off and for many other species, too. But again, you have to think big. Uh, you know, the, the limiting resource, the limiting factor in terms of eating these fish and shellfish is the PCBs. And they are lowering just through natural uh, dilution and, and breaking down of the chemical compounds. You know, almost famously, New Yorkers joke about how filthy the river is and all of that. I was just wondering if you could talk about how the pollution sort of progressed, because the book goes into great detail about it, and especially people dumping garbage, and there's even an illustration of people at Coney Island, and garbage is sort of washing up on the beach. So when did it start getting out of hand? The real problem with the pollution in the harbor became intense in the late 1800s. You know, the population of Manhattan was about 100,000 people in 1800, and it was 2 million in, in 1900 because of the incredible immigrant waves from Europe as people came through Ellis Island and just settled into the ghettos of Manhattan. And uh, none of that waste was treated. So you had the human waste from 2 million people from Manhattan alone. That's not counting Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and you know the rest of the region, going into the system every day completely untreated. And it simply overwhelmed the waters. Uh, it became so intensely bad in the early 1900s that the authorities set up a Metropolitan Sewage Commission that investigated it, and they found deposits of human waste that were 10 feet thick in some places. And because uh, Manhattan Island, for instance, is so narrow, 
it would not have time to degrade in the pipe. So it would come into the waters and just be fresh as can be and drop down to the bottom and just degrade and use up the oxygen. And it was said that people would go down to the piers and watch the water seethe and spit with the action of the, uh, the effervescence of the degradation of the, the sewage on the bottom. Nothing could live in that. You know, that, that's clearly why the oysters disappeared. And that was just the sewage pollution, which was, was I think, the primary problem with um, the health of the harbor. But then we had industrial contamination, too. You know, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, which caught fire in, in 1969, is considered to be the pivotal moment in, in precipitating the uh, Clean Water Act. But we caught fire in the 1800s in New York Harbor. Don't get any credit for it. Uh, we had oil slicks that, that, that caught fire out in the open harbor. And we had vast amounts of industrial pollution coming in, too. You know, in those days, the answer to pollution was dilution. So you were legally allowed in many places to just dump whatever effluence you had. That's how we got rid of waste. It was a kind of a very different existence. People also swam in the Hudson in those days in these floating bathing pools that were basically piers that surrounded open water. And people would stand in line to jump into sewage-polluted water to escape the heat of the tenements because, you know, this was in days before air conditioning, often before showers, and it was preferential to jump into sewage-laden water where the sewage particles were visible to your eye as opposed to being in a hot tenement building all day long without any kind of relief. So our standards are just so different today. It's just phenomenal. So what happened to the wildlife with all that sewage? Were the fish able to live and evolve, or, or did everything die? What happened? There were sections of the harbor that lost their fish, uh, especially there's, there's good information for the Arthur Kill behind Staten Island where some surveys from the 1960s, I think it was, showed essentially no fish. But there were other sections of the system that because the harbor is so well flushed and received enough clean seawater or relatively clean seawater that fish did persist. So even through the worst times, we had runs of shad, we had runs of striped bass, we had runs of sturgeon coming in and out from the sea. And there were pockets of waters that still had robust populations, but there were other large sections that were severely compromised, especially during the summer, because the summer is when you have the most biological activity in the water. And in those places that had sewage contamination, they might have fish life in the dead of winter when there wasn't much bacterial activity using up the oxygen, but uh, in summertime, you would have these, these vast, what are called hypoxic or anoxic zones where there was just limited or no oxygen. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong with any of these events. So people would dump garbage into the water, and then they set up Fresh Kills landfill, and the garbage went there. And now Fresh Kills is turning into this big, massive park. So, I mean, is that almost an example of sort of the changes we've been through? You know, dump water in the park, dump it in a landfill, turn the landfill into a park. Yeah, we've, we've really evolved a long way. You know, originally people would just dump trash in the open lots of Manhattan, and uh, quite often pigs would make a living going from dump to dump, eating the stuff. And there were uh, images of, of the police making pig roundups in Manhattan when there were too many pigs, you know, throwing their weight around. Uh, then we started to dump it into the water, and uh, it would just wash around the harbor. Eventually, we started taking it out to the area around Sandy Hook and dumping it using these large barges, and a lot of that would wash back along the shore, and there were accounts of people swimming among the corpses of rotting dogs and, and rotting fruit and all kinds of wastes that would uh, wash back. Then we started uh, dumping it further offshore and eventually taking it to landfills around uh, the system like the Fresh Kills, and now a lot of it is being recycled. 
which is to our credit, and a lot of it is being shipped further away to landfills that are not in urban areas. And that gives us an opportunity to reclaim uh, sites such as the Fresh Kills, which you know, I drove past there a year or two ago, and I was amazed to see how green it was and how it was looking like a uh, very interesting habitat because, you know, New York City and, and Staten Island is, is mostly rather flat. And once the Fresh Kills greens up, we're going to have this little sort of mountain range, which uh, is being looked at now as a major amenity for recreation for people. There are kayakers there and hikers, and uh, I, I think Fresh Kills has a bright future. Can you tell me about Floaters Week? Uh, Floaters Week is a sardonic term for a period, usually in mid-April, when whatever bodies happen to have either been dumped or human bodies that have, people have died on their own in the harbor and have lingered on the bottom of the harbor all winter long when there isn't much bacterial activity, as the waters warm, all of a sudden become sort of puffy and rise to the surface. And when I was working on the Westway study, this was the study to look at the effects of the West Side Highway back in um, the early 80s, I was on board with an old New York Harbor captain and said, wait for Floaters Week, you're going to see some, some bodies. And believe it or not, uh, we did see two pop up during that time. So it's not an old wives' tale. In fact, uh, in mid-April, you can expect whatever bounty of bodies rests on the bottom of the harbor to, to make an appearance. I want to talk now about the Clean Water Act in 1972. So what happened that sort of propelled that? I think there are thresholds of disgust that are sometimes attained that really precipitate action. And I think what happened with the Metropolitan Sewerage Authority in the early 1900s, where conditions in New York Harbor became intolerable, precipitated this study, which was actually quite elegant uh, and, and led to um, initial sewage treatment that helped the system. There was another wave of this in the 19 late 1960s as the environmental movement took hold across the country and many people said you know what we're doing to our rivers and our harbors is, is is not okay we're living in filth and we have to do something about it the Cuyahoga River burning in 69 is, is cited often as that particular single event that really crystallized it for people you know if you have water burning what's worse than that we realize that industry can't do whatever it wants and we can't just dump where we eat it doesn't make sense it kind of crystallized at that moment in time, and, and that led to so many recoveries all around the United States, you know, Boston Harbor, the Cuyahoga River, San Francisco Bay. You, you name the urban system, and it looked a lot different a few years after 1972 than it did before. You write that the harbor is, and I'm quoting here, like the survivor of a ghastly medical accident. So right where, where we are now, you know, how is it different than it was 40 years ago? I think we should be really happy with the state that it's returned to, but it is so different from what it was originally. If you just look at the sort of the morphology of the harbor, originally it had, uh, it was very shallow, didn't have channels dredged to 55 feet. It was about 20 feet deep, typically. Um, it had sloping shores with, with Spartina-lined marshes on it and, and sandbars and all kinds of wonderful habitat for fish and shellfish. The water quality, of course, was, was, was pristine. Nowadays, we have uh, bulkheaded shores, we have channelized bottoms, we have much of the convolutions of the harbor straightened out, the sandbar is dredged, the water quality is not what it was, there are non-native species, but we can't expect to ever go back to what it was. That's not going to happen, you know, barring an apocalypse. So uh, we should be grateful for the fact that we've crossed this threshold that I consider to be the metric or the standard for success, which is to have a functioning ecosystem that has, you know, multiple levels from, from phytoplankton on up through fish, 
that may look different from what it did originally, but is still fishable and, and functioning nicely. And it is better than it was previously with all the pollution, or is it just, or is it not? Are there more species now, or have they made a comeback, or is it just whatever was left? We haven't really lost species except for those uh, related to climate change. The big difference is that we have, you know, thriving fish populations 12 months of the year throughout most of the system. At its worst, we had very few fish in the summer and these sort of dead areas from the lack of oxygen and uh, very low numbers of certain species. So they've come roaring back in, in a big way. And even if you can't see them, it's just kind of great to know they're back and that the, the river is behaving the way a river should. Since you first published the book and since going back to revise it, there's been you know, the sense amongst the mainstream population of climate change and fighting to protect the environment. Has that played at all into New York Harbor, people sort of realizing things about climate change, things like that? There's a lot of interest in climate change and New York Harbor right now post-Sandy. I think that Sandy was an eye-opener. And, you know, it was just amazing to me as a scientist watching good scientists who work on climate change doing, you know, basic model predictions that showed more storms, larger storms, climate effects, and being ignored. And then all of a sudden, New York City gets hit with one storm and climate change is real. Um, it, it's just interesting that it plays out that way. But now that it is sort of real um, and it's been demonstrated to have these uh, potential effects, if you use Sandy as a model of what will be, and it probably is a good model because uh, with sea level rise occurring, which is really unambiguous, the sea level is rising. Um, even small storms in the future will have the same effect as large storms now because they're essentially starting from a higher rung on a ladder. So the, the climate change interest has become intense as of late, but there's always been a lot of interest, in, in uh, at least as far as the environmental movement goes, in the Hudson and the harbor because some people give credit to the Hudson for the birth of the environmental movement with the wars that were fought over the effects of power plants on fish in the 1960s and 1970s. You know, power plants suck in vast amounts of water to uh, cool their, um, their inner workings. And as they do so, they, they entrain lots of little larvae and, and uh, fish eggs, and they also impinge larger fish against the screens. And it was clear that they were killing vast numbers of fish in the system. And this became a major battle and uh, precipitated the growth of, of very powerful organizations like, like Scenic Hudson and Clearwater that lead me to say that right now I think the Hudson and the harbor have some of the fiercest uh, environmentalists in the world. And, and they, you know, you, you, you can't uh, throw a piece of paper in the water without somebody being concerned about it. And it's, it's a great thing. Uh, this is a well-watched system. Uh, just going back a little bit, I want to talk a little bit more about Sandy. How much of a detriment to New York Harbor was Superstorm Sandy? Superstorm Sandy was a detriment to the people of the harbor, but not so much to the organisms. I was actually involved in a, uh, a rapid assessment of the effects of the storm on the biota, and we found very few instances of any dramatic effect. You know, there was a dead bird here and a dead fish there, but for the most part, the organisms adapted or survived it quite well. Uh, habitat was changed, but it wasn't necessarily to the detriment of, of uh, non-human species. Of course, the effects on humans were, were intense. So are you continuing your research with New York Harbor? Is this some, like an ongoing project, or is it something that you, you know, check in on every now and then? 
as I said, every water body has a story and to be told. And I think in the case of New York Harbor, with 16 million people living around it and all the environmental organizations and all the pressures it has on it, you know, one could write updates to this book, you know, every decade for forever. And, you know, as you started out saying earlier, uh, many scientists are more absorbed with, with wilderness and exotic and pristine systems, but there's just so many cross currents here in this in this system because of all the human pressures that, uh, and the fact that it has not been studied as intensively as it might be because it's not exotic. But it's exotic in its own way because it's kind of an experiment ecologically. You know, it, it's, it's a system that has had such profound stresses on it that, um, you know, in many ways, it's it's unique, and for that reason alone, I think it's well worth the attention it receives, and and even more so. Yeah, everyone loves a good comeback story, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I think also the the recovery of New York Harbor is another one of those classic. You know, if you can do it in New York, you can do it anywhere, and uh, and I think that's true. Show me another system where it can't be done if we did it here. Thanks for talking to me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing. Heartbeats in the Muck, The History, Sea Life, and Environment of New York Harbor is now available from Fordham University Press. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms I'd go see. This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. You can hear our show every Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to stream at WFUV.org. You can also download our podcast, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.